every Arizona homeowner's best friend, and it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Back Arizona, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, our outdoor living hour, starting a brand new month here for Saturday in March. So we are talking farm fresh. Julie Murphy, spokeswoman for the Arizona Farm Bureau, and our goal with this broadcast every uh, the first Saturday of every month is to connect you, the Arizona homeowners, with local commodities coming fresh off the farms and ranches right here in Arizona. Agriculture is a $23 billion industry to Arizona, California. Cauliflower is 62 million of that. Milk is 72 million. Something meant not on here though is what we're talking about today is is uh, wheat. Wheat, but we act, we have our own patent for it though. We do, and it has been on the will before, but sometimes we uh, feature on the Arizona Farm Bureau's will thanks to the USDA NAS numbers. Um, NASS, I (laughs) I want to be careful when I say that, the National Statistical Service, um, they always give us the numbers, and sometimes wheat is on that top 16, and sometimes they're not. Uh, They don't appear this time, Eric. You got to... Wheels go around. The wheels go around. (laughs) And and, uh, one that we hadn't had on there for a while, pork, is actually on the wheel as the top 16. But today... I wanted to introduce Eric Wilkie, who's the president of Arizona Grain. So we actually don't have a farmer with us as our guest, but we have someone that's a major and serious advocate. And you're the first one to say it. Without agriculture, you can have the job you have, right? Absolutely not. Good morning. Um, yeah, I've uh, I've been in Arizona for a little over 30 years. And, uh, you know, I've always been in agriculture from uh, from a young age, growing up on a farm in Illinois. And uh, six brothers, I hear six brothers uh, built in labor force. And yes. I decided to exit that labor force and use my education to uh, study markets and economics. And and uh, that uh, that pursuit ended ended uh, here in Arizona, not ended, but it landed me in Arizona. It actually flourished in Arizona, it sounds like. So you're the president of Arizona Grain, which is a privately held company located in Cass Grand, Arizona. So tell us exactly what. Arizona grain does. That's a that's a uh, good question. Um, we kind of challenge people from time to time. It's like, tell me a part of your day, and I'll tell you where Arizona grain is part of your day, and we can play that game later um, if you'd like. Because Arizona grain does a lot of things. So, in a simple form, we are grain handlers, seed handlers, merchants, and what that means is. Um, for a Arizona farmer, we may sell him his planting seed for cereal grains, for forage grains, buy back his production, and then either um, change its form through processing or through uh, through handling logistics and make it available to other participants in the market. Um, so we're in the seed business, we're in the feed business, we're in the grain business, um, we're in the bird seed business. Uh, we make uh, products for ranchers. So we have uh, kind of we're kind of really. Um, Ingrained in, to use, ingrained, a pun, yeah. to use a pun, in agriculture <laughs> industry. That is awesome. And so, like my father, who remembers you, we've been retired. The Murphy family's been retired since 2004. But he would buy, he could buy seed from you, plant it, harvest, grow it, harvest, and then he'd sell it back to you. So talk about 
coming full circle, right? Yeah, and that's kind of the maybe what we'll get into a little bit today with with Durham wheat, which is a which is a really interesting story. And um, what we like to call, you know, we like to think of it as a is completing a chain or completing the circle. So Desert Durham is uh, got a history, uh, first of all, of being a very low quality kind of feed product that just didn't really realize its best potential. It was a it was a rotation crop for farmers who were in the cotton business, alfalfa business. And then some plant breeders came in and said, how do we improve this? Because we have a really good environment. So there, there you have you know, farming opportunities. You bring in plant breeding and genetics. You have a perfect environment here in Arizona. We have a greenhouse. You know, we don't have inclement weather during our harvest periods, which makes for really good durum wheat, which is what the pasta industry wants. Then you have the handlers. Then you have the universities in research. Then you um, have the marketing side of it. And so we've been able to build this chain. And when I say we, I talk collectively for the farmers. Again, everybody I mentioned, the handlers, and there's others than Arizona Grain. But we've worked collectively to build this chain to bring greater value to a crop that used to just have a very low value. And that's been the interesting story. So the chain now extends from the, the research and plant breeding through the farmer, through the handler, all the way to some of the best pasta made in the world. And that's a really well-kept secret that I think um, we, like to, we like more people to know about. Um, we travel to Italy every year as an example. And it's kind of fun when you're in a restaurant and they ask maybe you get a conversation going and they ask you what you do and you say, well, I sell wheat. And um, what kind of wheat? Well, durum wheat. What do you, you know, and, and they usually know that durum wheat makes pasta. And then you quiz them and say, where does the best wheat come for the best Italian pastas? And they never get it right. But the answer is Arizona. Wow. And so obviously, by the way, on that trip to Italy, if you're doing it annually, you can take me and I'll do all the social media, write all the articles. You know, I, I'm so there. <laughs> <laughs> and so you obviously know a lot about grain and grain commodities, to say the least. Arizona grows, and you made reference to it, world-renowned wheat that literally is registered as desert durum, and be- and that's because of its consistent quality. Our desert durum keeps global markets coming back for more, and w- we think of Italy all the time. So this is a fun part, and I'm going to have you drill down a little bit more on this, uh, Eric, but... The phrase Desert Durham has been trademarked with the U.S. Patent Office, office under the ownership of the Arizona Grain Research and Promotion Council, which you were chair for a couple of years. And I know that kind of cycles because we have all of our uh, farmers and people in agriculture that they want to be on that council and helping us make good decisions. And then also the California Wheat Commission, because in California and Arizona, this is where we're literally producing this high-quality desert durum. Another thing I like to highlight when I talk about the desert durum uh, with my network is, as a result, only desert durum grown in Arizona and California qualifies for that trademark. Uh, This special wheat is produced under irrigation in the desert valleys and lowlands of Arizona and California. And you were kind of talking to us about that before the show. It's like uh, Romy asked, you know, where are we growing all this wonderful quality desert durum? Yeah, it's uh, it's really from corner to corner in the state, but it's generally in the arc of the uh, below the Mogollon Rim, of course, which is you know, if I can describe it, it, would be starting in Wilcox, going through the Tucson area, through the Santa Cruz Valley, up through um, uh, the Salt River area, so uh, Maricopa County, good example, and then grown out th- towards Gila Bend, 
down through the Welton Mohawk Valley and into the Colorado River Basin. So those are the lowlands, irrigated farm ground, uh, where we have the best weather and the most productivity for growing uh, growing many crops, uh, you know, vegetables and other things. But Durham is part of that mix. It's high protein. Yeah. And color is an issue, especially with our Italian buyers. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So some of the some of the unique things, again, when I talked about there isn't the inclement weather during um, the harvest period. So one thing about durum wheat is is that it doesn't do well if it gets rained on because it it what we there's a term called bleaching, okay? And and it basically bleeds out the nice amber yellow color that we expect when we buy pasta. If you bought a pasta and it looked white and chalky in the package, it wouldn't look very appealing. So it's that that amber color that we're looking for. When you grow durum wheat in northern climates, and it's grown in North, North Dakota, Montana, Canada, uh, those would be major production areas. But it can rain during any month of the year, um, and particularly during the maturation period of August and September in those areas. And they can lose all that color. We don't have that. But one of the things that we've also done with this crop, when I say we, again, I, I talk collectively about us all, right? Because <laughs> this is that chain that I mentioned, um, is that through traditional plant breeding um, techniques, we have um, increased the yellow pigments, again, by, nat- by selecting the right plants that express that more darker yellow color. And that is a very prized thing because, again, it makes for that very appealing pasta that's on your plate. So we've done that. The other thing is, is that we've added um, strength and elasticity to the, to the uh, semolina. And semolina is basically durum wheat that's been ground into a flour. And um, when you make your pasta with desert durum, it's much more al dente. You've all heard that term, right? Yes. Al dente, this is good. It's firm to the bite. That's really what al dente means. Keeps the wonderful pasta shapes that we see. Right. And, and you know, if you really are, if you really are into pasta, and I, and I think I am just because of doing this for so long, that al dente is important. But also that al dente helps um, and the shape. And why is there so many shapes in pasta? Because every shape um, has a different texture on your tongue and bite. It holds the sauce differently. So if you have a if you have a durum wheat that's very strong, and we say again al dente, then it holds the sauce better. It holds up on your plate. It looks more appealing. And those are all characteristics that you know um, a high quality pasta will exhibit. So some of our fine pasta chefs are nodding their heads. I know I can envision it, even though we're on the radio. And Eric, it sounds like you ha- kind of have a connoisseur. You've developed a connoisseur taste on all of this. You've tried a lot of Italian pasta grown with desert durum Arizona wheat. I have. Um, but, you know, it's you can also um, find desert durum as a part of many domestic brands as well. Um, we're a premium item because of, again, our environment. Again, we, we produce this high quality, but we do um, because we irrigate our crops. We don't rely on, on only, only rainfall, you know, present from the sky. Um, and we can get into the whole sustainability question because a lot of people want to ask, and, and I'll be happy to answer questions about that, is desert, desert durum farming sustainable? And we believe and um, can talk about how it's more sustainable in many ways compared to other areas. But um, uh, so, you know, if, if you want to ask me questions about that. Well, I am curious. So why would you say that you think, because we know we have to apply irrigated managed water to it. Why, why do you think it's more sustainable? Well, one of the things that when you talk about 
irrigation. Irrigation, particularly if it comes from a river system and so forth, with the ma- which the majority of Arizona agriculture is irrigated through the river systems, that is rainfall that just fell another day. It's no different than the rainfall that fell on the crop in North Dakota or Canada and was used today and was gone. This water was just stored for a short period of time, and then it was delivered. So there's no difference in that resource. It's just the time that it was delivered for. Also because our water has a cost to it. Um, It is managed. Anything that has a cost, you know, as an economist you know, is going to be rationed or managed uh, to get the best value out of it. And so farmers have become very innovative, whether it's in their drip irrigation, whether it's in the type of uh, flood irrigation that they use, laser leveling fields so they can run a a half inch of water across the field um, and irrigate the whole field versus, you know, if you have an undulating field, then you got to put more water on. So farmers have learned all these things. Also, um, you know, uh, looking at uh, irrigating every other row and different things like that. Um, The other thing is we don't lose crops here in Arizona. That's a, a big question about sustainability is... If you grow a crop in North Dakota and the rain comes during harvest and you lose it all, or a frost happens late and you lose it all, then all those resources, fertilizer, tra- you know, the tractor time. have been wasted. They've been yep. wasted. Hmm. We don't ever waste those here. I never thought of it that way. So those are just a couple examples. Yeah. I'm on cloud nine, living mighty fine. You're all I ever wanted but thought I'd never find. High on the hog, my feet ain't even touching the ground. Continue our conversation with Arizona Farm Bureau, Julie Murphy's in with her guests, Shannon Schultz and Kevin Rogers, both uh, predominant pork growers and the um, the 4-H and FFA programs. I've I've seen stuff, Kevin, that you've been posting, seems like at least 15 years your kids have been involved in 4-H with raising pigs. Well, I think all of our kids have for a long time. Shannon's, in fact, Shannon showed hogs. I showed horses when I was nine, but... Uh, yeah, our kids, uh, it was funny. We thought they were going to show horses, so I was geared up for horses. And, and my daughter, when she was nine, Taylor says, I said, so what What, what do you want to show? And she says, oh, I want to show a pig like Cousin Ashley did. So I called Shannon. I says, hey, it's time. My kids want to get in the pig deal. And uh, so he got us started. But, you know, it, it's a great opportunity for these kids if they have the facilities and they're able to uh, to make it fit at their at their houses or even at these high schools. Now, a lot of the high schools have FFA programs where you can actually keep animals at the high school. And, um, and it's, it's such a great opportunity. But um, it's teaching kids basic skills um, and responsibility and all those things that go with it. And, and the fair is just an opportunity for them to – to show what they've done, how they've done, and hopefully at the end of the day, they've they get enough money at that sale where they can at least pay their feed bill back and and uh, and make it work. But uh, but really, it's the responsibility of of getting there. I know Shannon's kids have all showed a number of different animals, and and it's it's a family tradition for a lot of us that are agriculture folks. Well, and the family aspect is something I wanted to elaborate on because, uh, and. I've just figured this out sitting here. You, Shannon, you had mentioned that it was a virtual sale last year. Well, we bought a pig from some friends of ours who couldn't take it to the fair, the Shaconis, yep. who live in Buckeye, and then you're in Buckeye. So I'm like, I asked during the break, and it was your cousins uh, who they bought the pig from. Yep. And we actually had the pork from that last night. Uh, Amanda had put it in the crock pot. So we had our dinner last night originally came from your cousin. Absolutely. (laughs) And when you get involved in these, you realize just how small the world is and uh, the people and the connections that you make, uh, they'll be with you for a lifetime. I mean, Kevin, you'd mentioned when you guys were ready for pigs, you had contacted Shannon and you guys grew up together in the 
kind of the Southwest Valley, was that what you call it? Buckeye, yeah. Levine, Tullis scenario? Yep, absolutely. I mean, these, these relationships stay with you, you know, your and, lifetime. And Shannon, you made a point I kind of want you to elaborate on during the break. It's not just about the money for the kids, it, because sometimes they don't necessarily make a profit off of it. No, I, I mean, really, Julie, I think... And we've shown pigs. I, I did it when I was nine. I'm 52, and so that's been a couple of days. My kids did it for 20 years, and I, my last one is 16, going to be 17. It's not about the money for us, and I don't think it should be. I, kids need to learn how to make a profit or not for business, but it's about animal husbandry, taking care of that animal that's dependent on you to feed it. It'll teach you to raise a family. I mean, it'll teach you to care for something other than yourself. That's the biggie. The lessons you learn, the friendships, like Kevin said, that you make in this thing are lifelong friendships. You know, you go to the shows, these kids get to interact with one another. They get some communication and people skills, you know. My dad always told me, he says, there's one thing you can't be without if you want to be successful. You got to have people skills. These kids have to interact with other people. They got to talk. They got to do those things. So it's really important. And I... It's not all about the winning. Everybody wants to be a winner, but there's only one at a fair my, or a show. That's the deal, you know. Everybody wants to be the winner, but not everybody is. My father-in-law, you know, he hasn't had kids at his house for over 20 years, but still is involved in the 4-H fair in their local town and, and hasn't missed a single year just because that's that's what they do. Absolutely. It becomes what you do. You're right. It becomes what you do. So big takeaway, mom and dads, if you have your kids, uh, put them in 4-H and FFA and make sure they get a pig, a steer, a well, goat. Well, and they can do chickens. They can do all <laughs> kinds of different chickens. animals. They can do photography. I mean, it's just a good life skill place to go. And in high school, the FFA program is just second to none. And uh, and there's there's opportunities there for these these kids to participate and, and do, do what, these things. What year did you blue ribbon your... Uh, Banana nut bread. Oh, jeez. At the county fair. I have fair. no idea. Blue ribbon, banana nut bread. Now you're right talking my deal. Let's talk food. <laughs> That's right. right. So, yeah. Romy, do you do most of the co- cooking at home then? Uh, it's about half and half. Just depends. There I, you go. I have a, a pretty big commute, but when I'm home, I do enjoy it, and it gives Amanda a break. There you go. Well, and there's a whole network out there of these kids that that love it like our families have. Uh, and you wouldn't know it, but you hear about the guys going to the ropings and the cuttings and all the things across the state and across the country. Uh, there's a network of kids that go to shows somewhere mm-hmm. two or three times a month. And and if you watch, you'll see all these low-profile trailers that look like horse trailers, but they're short, uh, full of livestock, goats and pigs uh, and cattle, running up and down the highways, headed up north in the summer and, and down south in the winter um, because these kids uh, want to compete and they're they're – They've got these animals year-round, uh, at least on the hog deal some do, and, and so it gives them opportunities. Uh, Shannon's family and my family, we drug pigs to Des Moines, Iowa for several years for the World Pork Expo. And, uh, um, and our, you know, you don't expect to do very well when you're competing with the big dogs back there, but our kids learn so much if, if they have those opportunities. And, and they had animals that, that were born on Shannon's farm or born from a breeder in the Midwest and and uh, but it's it's all about the kids learning a skill and, and and being good citizens like Shannon said it's great. It's the first time we ever got bacon ice cream too by the way. That was good stuff. <laughs> bacon ice cream. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I yeah. I hadn't thought of that uh, but uh, that one that actually I, I would probably try that one. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, yeah, we spent a lot of a lot of time on the road. We spent a lot of dollars too, but you, those memories just don't ever come back. I mean, you can't can't replace those memories. Now, I haven't given out the number, but I have seen Jennifer on the phone a few times. If you've got a question uh, about pigs or Arizona Farm Bureau or 
a lot of these shows and fairs and how to get involved in the contact information for that, you can reach us. It's one 767 4348 That's one 888 rosie you. Text questions, 411-923, or email info at rosieonthehouse.com. Have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt? And that's Gary D working his magic on the intro music in the background. Always find something relatable to the topic at hand. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about nutrition. Pork is an excellent source of protein, obviously. We know that and provides several important vitamins and minerals. A three-ounce serving of pork is an excellent source of thiamine, selenium, protein, niacin, vitamin B6, and so much more. I could name the other things, but I'd be nervous my tongue would trip over itself. Um, It's heart healthy, and that's acknowledged by the American Heart Association. Both the pork tenderloin and the pork sirloin roast meet the criteria for the American Heart Association to be heart healthy. So there's all sorts of healthy benefits to eating pork. Of course, that's what we're going to promote today because we're in agriculture. Uh, Arizona Pork Council and Arizona Farm Bureau like to highlight these healthy parts of it. But, you know, beyond that, I know these two guys that are sitting to my left, they're going to just basically tell you it's just good meat. And both of you barbecue, so talk about it. Well, health, health benefits, that's great. Let's face it. Pork's the best thing on the barbecue. Tastes awesome. Who doesn't like bacon? I mean, you can wrap bacon around anything, and it makes it better. You know, we just talked. We got bacon ice cream. You can put it in a jalapeno <laughs> popper. You can do whatever. Yeah. Bacon just makes things better. It does. No, we do like we do like our pork. So is it your meat of choice on the barbecue even more than – now, you got to remember, we're representing the beef industry, too. <laughs> Not today. So, <laughs> well, bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, bacon Co- Coexistion. Yeah. Per- perfect marriage. That's perfect exactly marriage. Right. So, Kevin, what do you do on the bar- barbie? Well, What's I think it thing? depends on what's going on. My time at Arizona Farm Bureau, we started uh, right. a grill project. And uh, uh, back when we had the fires up in the mountains and, and lost over a million acres of, of rangeland, um, up there that uh, Arizona Farm Bureau, along with our Farm Bureau Financial Services partner, we uh, we decided we wanted to go out and feed people and say, we're sorry for what you, you went through. And so we bought a grill and, and, and fixed it up and did some stuff. And Bruce Kane uh, leads our team. I'm still involved with that. And Jim Klinker uh, was our exec at the time. And, and we feed uh, thousands of people a year at different events. And our biggest is probably Pinal County Fair at the auction. And we feed close to 1,500 people every year. Now, this year we didn't do it because of COVID. But um, I think our peak, we did something like over 13,000 meals. There you go. Um, and so a lot of times when, when our grill team goes to work, uh, it depends on what people really want. But, man, pulled pork is just, it's easy. You throw it in the smoker. Um, you let it you let it sit there all night, and it comes off in the morning. With a good thermometer, you can cook anything and uh, and make it work, and it's phenomenal. These guys are dedicated. I know a lot of the times you've been putting the pulled you've been putting the roast in there like that night. I mean, it's almost a twenty four. Well, and you know, thing. to do it right, you got to season it ahead of time. And Shannon does a lot of a lot of barbecue as well, especially for groups when he has his sale and different things like that. He's done pulled pork for years for his family and his dad as well. Um, but yeah, you got to season it the night before, let it sit and let it, let it, uh, soak it all in and then, uh, throw it in the smoker and then you got to wrap it and finish it on up. But, uh, 
Um, but there's there's nothing better than that. And pork will, will come apart, will shred so easy you drop the bone out. And you can shred it with a power drill now with the tools we have and make it work. But <laughs> but uh, we do a lot of brisket, too. Yeah. Uh, brisket's a great a great uh, cut to put in the smoker and, and make that work. But there's a lot of good options now, out there. I have to ask you both a question. I think a lot of our listeners are probably wanting to know right now. Personal preference, coleslaw on top of your sandwich or on the side? Oh, on top for sure. Uh, I'm a Absolutely. side guy. I'm Kevin's a side, a side guy. guy. Shannon's side on top. Guy. Hey, it all ends up mixed in your belly anyway. That's you right. might as well just help the process. I'm, along. I'm with you. Shannon. I'm good with pickles on it as well. But, uh. So we're gonna. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention was Bruce Kane because he's oftentimes the master chef for some of these Goodwill barbecues for Arizona Farm Bureau and Farm Bureau Financial Services. And I'm telling you, he gets in the zone. He has his chef cooker zone focus. Oh, he's he is amazing, and he's a Louisiana boy, um, and uh, and he does it he does it first class, and he's the guy who spends the whole three days ahead of time preparing and making sure he's got the right cut, and then he's at his house or at the farm bureau office seasoning it up the night before, and we'll go in and help him sometimes, but he's got it down to such a science that he just soon do it himself because he doesn't want us to screw it up. <laughs> So <clears throat> for everyone else that has uh, Southern or, or Louisiana background, I, I think we're all probably wondering the same thing, too. Have you all ever done a couchon delay? No, sir. That was oh, my got, question. Oh, we got to fix that. <laughs> we got to solve that oh, problem. Oh, we got to fix that right now. That, that is, it. and for anyone, that is a rotisserie pig, the entire thing. And when you're ready, you just walk up there and you just, as it's turning, you just put your plate underneath and you slice it right off or even if it's done right you know just you could pull it off with your hands i'm in you know that one would be good for racing for the bacon in october well <laughs> we, we we've done them? them when they've been flat on the charcoal on the ground on bricks oh, around yeah. we've but we've never i've never rotisserated one i was gonna but, say my uh, uncle did that too because i'm from south louisiana we put a pig in the ground overnight and there's a celebration in saint martinville louisiana the yeah, on delay before right. mardi gras but they show you they have a live pig and they harvest it right on the spot. They show you exactly how they cleaned it back in the days by boiling water in a uh, in a uh, tub, and the knives had to be sterilized. And you know they did the whole thing. And you had fresh pork by two in the afternoon. Now we're talking. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, delay. I, that's got to be put on the calendar. We need to do that. That needs to be a big event. So now, I got to ask one question: If we're doing all this barbecue, and Mr. Kane. Yeah, or is it a vinegar base or is it a sweet mm. base? How do y'all like your barbecue, your pulled pork? I kind of like mine a vinegar. I'm kind of okay. okay. I'm a I'm a sweet guy. I like the barbecue sauce personally. Yeah. But I was, I'll eat it either way. I was okay. raised on Bill Johnson's Big Apple barbecue <laughs> sauce, and uh, that's that's the way to go. <laughs> hey, let's face it. With pork, you know, everybody has their secret. My dad, we call it Big V's Big barbecue at our sale for years we did it for buckeye ag day we barbecued for 30 years yours a secret recipe you put on that pork you don't tell anybody that's, that's right. your secret deal they got to come get it other other animals that we uh cook we don't have that the pork we, we got do. a special recipe you don't share with anybody yeah. that's the family secret you know well bruce has got his own dry rub and he'll he'll send me buckets of it but he won't tell me what he put in to make it done <laughs> just like representative tim dunn in yuma he's quite a barbecue guy before he got hung up in the legislature he's doing a great job for us down there but but tim's got a little barbecue company does competitive barbecuing and he's got his own seasoning and rub and sauce line his and he drove up from yuma uh last yep. year for the broadcast once yep. yeah he's a good guy so on a more serious note what do we think of the pork's carbon fo footprint 
It's actually very good. <laughs> Safeguarding the environment is important to America's pork producers who work to steward their land for future generations. So here's some of the things they've done in the past six decades. They've re reduced their land use. We have to anyway because we keep selling to developers. 75% less land is used, and we're producing far more pork than we ever have. 25% less water, 7% less energy, and 7.7% fewer carbon emissions. Pork production accounts for less than 0.3% of greenhouse gas emissions. I'm just noting that for those that always ask that question and have that concern. Pork does an amazing job at protecting our environment. And I saved this article from the Wall Street Journal talking about farming in general and that over the past 70 years, farming has tripled on production-wise in, in America, but on, <clears throat> on less land. And some of the things that they attributed to, uh, you know, in the 90s when GPS came in and that's on the tractors and now when you're doing a lot of your big harvesting, uh, we don't have a lot of uh, combine harvesting uh, like they do in rice fields and the wheat farms and the corn, but you know, directing your tractor to the least amount of possible movement yep. and a, a very precise, so you're not overlapping what you've already cut. Um, soil mapping, they said that came out in the 2000s. My, my father-in-law has been doing that in California since the 70s, wow. where you go out and you take soil samples and you're like, all right, we're trying to grow cantaloupe. And this soil to grow cantaloupe and get optimal, you need to add these nutrients and combination mix to the soil to get your maximum production. And they're they're getting they're thinking that they're going to be close to getting four harvests of cantaloupe in a cycle wow. at Harquahela uh, in the next couple of years. So just the amount of technology that has come in uh, to the farming industry and all the while reducing the land and the water use. And we really have to because our costs keep going up. So sometimes we're forced to, based on the inputs, that that's what we say in agriculture. But the reality is it's always a benefit to our environment. And I don't like to tell people we're producing more, even more, twice as much as we used to on far less land and using far less water. And since 70, 1972, the use of insecticides has dropped 80%. Right. Well, I, we can speak to that with cotton. BT oh, cotton, genetically modified cotton, dad reduced his pesticide use by well over 90% that first season that we planted the biotech cotton. It's amazing because you hit a good point, uh, Romy, that without technology, um, agriculture would not be the same as it is today. We'd, we would require everyone to have to have 20 acres and a mule. I mean, now technology allows us to, to produce enough food and fiber um, so you don't have to worry about it. Um, we've got folks that, that love it and choose to have that lifestyle that are able to do it and, and do it safely and environmentally friendly so that everyone else can have a different job. It, it reminds me, Secretary Vilsack, Tom Vilsack, who uh, was the Secretary of Agriculture uh, under the Obama administration, is now back under the Biden administration. Tom's a great guy, but one of his best speeches talked about because agriculture does what they do so well, you don't have to worry about it anymore. You can go to school and be a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist, uh, whatever you want to do. You can you can do construction. You can do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about your food because you know it's always going to be there and it's going to be safe. And, and, and we're uh, getting better and far maximizing the resources that we know we always have to have. We always have to have the sun. We always have to have the land. We have to have the soil. Um, and to bring that back to pork, that same technology has helped us over – 
over the generations have leaner animals, right. so your cuts are better. You put that loin roast on the grill, uh, and there's nothing better than a good a good loin roast and and slice that puppy thin, and it's it's just amazing. But that same technology helps us with our livestock production as well. I think we can count eight cuts of pork meeting the USDA guidelines for lean, and I don't think you could say that a hundred years ago. So we've just gotten better at what we do. And I'll save this last one for you pork guys. In Europe, there's a directive that requires pigs have ample light, less noise, and more space. To help these highly intelligent animals overcome boredom, the directive requires that pigs have access to material to enable proper investigation and manipulation activities, in other words, toys. (laughs) There you go. Well, I'll tell you. Raising pigs, and uh, let's just cut to it. A lot of people don't like the commercial thought of pigs. They think they're overcrowded. Pigs are really, uh, they're really friendly animals that want to be together. Social. They like to be their social animals in groups. They do great. But I will tell you, you ever see a jolly ball that people hang in their horse stalls for their horse to play with? We have pigs that don't like to sit still. We put a jolly ball in their pen at home, and they roll it around and play with it. So pigs are highly intelligent, and they do like to play with things. You know, getting back to fair pigs, and I used to have mine. I was just because now I always see the pigs that you guys, the pictures that you guys post on Facebook, and of course other family friends that have their kids in 4-H and FFA. And I'm looking at my show pig, and I actually did pretty good when I had pig. <laughs> they but were I, terrible. Oh, I was going to say <laughs> they were terrible. <laughs> they look so dorky compared to oh, today's pigs. today's today's pig. If you want to talk technology or advancement, yeah. They're pretty animals. They got meat. They walk good. The pigs we used to raise, my kids go, Dad, you really raised that? That (laughs) thing was terrible. How did you win? I was embarrassed. This little pig went to market. This little pig stayed home. This little pig had a road. This little pig had none. Well, this has been a wonderful hour. We've got our final segment here. I know we've got a few things we want to, to talk through, but I, it just occurred to me while during the break listening to y'all talk, we didn't really go through the accolades of everyone sitting in this room. Kevin briefly said, uh, my time at the Farm Bureau, well, your Farm Bureau president's two-year term, and you were there like 12 years. 14. 14. <laughs> Not <laughs> that I was seven counting. consecutive terms. <laughs> yeah. And then he's and also... Then the, the Port Council and the Arizona Cotton Growers, and you guys were... Even mentioned two associations during the break that I'm like, I haven't even well, heard of Well, we've both been this. on the county fair board. We were both on Arizona National Board. Uh, we were both on the Sailor Livestock Board, it's which that one. I the- just rotated off. Shannon is still on with his wife, and we got a bunch of friends that are still on there. I just decided I need to take a break for a while. Um, I'm the guy who always says yes. And, uh, Sometimes we've got to say that. Shannon, that, yeah. that. That led to 14 years as president. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. It's hard to say no. So Carol had a question for us. So I'm over here looking at your auction site. And to the untrained eye, a lot of these pigs look the same. But this top one, he's almost worth $3,000. But this poor little piggy at the very end is only worth 500 What's the difference to, a, to an untrained eye? I'll tell you. I mean, to be honest, a lot of it is the champion or the grand champion, the reserve grand champion is kind of the, that's the number one and number two award. So a lot of those... So a lot of those kids, it's based on they won. You know, they're they're the champion. Those who bring the most money. But really, to be honest, it's about the kids going out and promoting themselves. They send buyers' letters to these to these companies to. 
people they know, their family members. So it's about their buyers. How can they go out there and generate somebody to buy their pig? And sometimes people bring a lot of money because who they are. Sometimes it's because they really went out there and worked the deal. That's the that's the difference. It's just a matter how of how hard you promoted you, you, your project. Which, in other words, marketing. Absolutely, yeah. marketing. Social wow. media. These kids got social media to market their animals. They've got Lake and Wright letters. Kevin's a handwritten letter guy. He likes to get handwritten buyer's letters. I get a hundred of them usually every year. So you were also going to talk a little bit more about the Maricopa County Fair? Well, we talked about the Maricopa County Fair. That's this coming week. The sale is on Saturday. It's kind of close to the public, to be honest. It's a bummer, but we're getting those kids in the ring. But our sale is on Saturday. That's where we reward those kids, so if you got a chance. But what I was talking about is the State Fair. We know the State Fair is moving from the fairgrounds downtown out to the Helia River Indian community. That's a great opportunity that State Fair can operate. You know, the State Fair runs independently. They generate their own dollars. They are out there doing that. Talking to Michael Serrell at Juan L. Costello that run the fair down there, they're having a livestock show. They're going to put up tents. They're having a livestock show at that fair. They feel that is a the really real important part of the community coming to see that livestock. We're the face of, we're the, face right. of the livestock industry as 4-H and FFA kids, so we got to be good stewards and show the public how we do it. Right. Well, we so appreciate you guys coming on the Rosie on the House show. This has been so fun, and we've learned so much. And let's keep talking pork, and let's keep supporting those kids at the fairs. I wanted to briefly mention, and Kevin, you can put your two cents on this too, because you know a lot of these farm families that might have hit that 100-year mark. So Arizona Farm Bureau is celebrating 100 years this year, 2021. And we want to highlight also some of our farms and ranches. So we have a page on the website. Just go to azfb.org, go to our news and resources, and you'll find the centennial page. And if you uh, represent a farm family or ranch family that's been in business for 100 years, we want to make sure we do some special recognition. There's an application to fill out and all that fun stuff. But, Kevin, gosh, I can think of some families right off the top of my head. Oh, sure. Small you, houses you, in the ranch you, you world. Think, you think of our ranch friends. You think of the Robies. Yep. Uh, 100 years, you, you think of these generational families that have been doing it a long time, and I think it's a great way to, to, to praise them uh, for continuing to, to raise food and fiber for this country and uh, people who are staying with it uh, because there's there's a lot of folks out there that, that have continued to do that. And, you know, we take it for granted. We take it for granted that, that in Arizona we've some, you know, got some of the best producers in the world. When you look at our vegetable production, our livestock production, um, our cotton production, uh, brag on cotton, we produce some of the highest quality cotton in the country yep. and in the world um, right here in Arizona. Uh, the Pima cotton that's grown here over in, uh, you know, Safford in, in Graham County, that's the long staple long fiber high thread count sheets high thread count brooks brothers shirts that's pima cotton and and that's all here in arizona and uh and so we've got a great legacy to to be proud of and hard to believe farm bill's been around 100 years but um uh, but it's something we need need to support and we need to look for those folks that have been here 100 years because there's a lot of sleeping giants that we don't talk about all the time and i think of some of the other farm families that might not have hit the 100 year mark but they're close to it um and it's it's so valuable, and it's um, something that we want to recognize. We might have to – we're estimating that we may land on anywhere from 15 to 20, maybe 25 farm families, farm and ranch families. I'm going to be really leaning on my outreach manager team because they're embedded in the counties. We're organized – Arizona Farm Bureau is organized around counties, and they're really embedded in those counties, so they'll probably 
be uh, knocking on some of our farm and ranch doors and saying, hey, you guys need to fill out this application. That's one of my favorite parts about the Farm Fresh Hours. Every guest you bring in, it's a rare thing that it's not a third, fourth, fifth generation Arizona farmer or rancher. And the stories and history that we get to talk about during the breaks that don't always make it on air are, are some of the you know, most most enjoyable memories we have on this broadcast. Kevin Rogers, Rogers Brothers Farms, thank you. Uh, Shannon Schultz, Schultz Family Farms. Uh, Julie Murphy, Arizona Farm Bureau, you'll be in May. And we're going to be talking Arizona microbreweries. But I saved this article from the Republic. I, I'm going to hand to you whether you do anything with it for next broadcast or not. Ten under-the-radar grapes Arizona winemakers are now growing. So that might be an addition Ooh, to your yeah, microbreweries. Or just have month. wine as a topic again. <laughs> Bring them all on. Five o'clock somewhere. AZFB.org <laughs> or fillyourplate.org. You can sign up for your Farm Bureau membership. Support local agriculture.